and uh, the children can't go to children's church. Open your Bibles if you have them to Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 17 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 9, 9 to 17. I know you're not going to believe this. Somebody snuck into my house last night and stole an hour of sleep from me. Anybody else that happened to? Man, spring break, we got losing an hour of sleep. It's like they didn't want us to win, right? I mean, all at the same time, yeah. Uh, Matthew 9, 9 to 17 will be at this morning. I remember uh, growing up when I first got my first car, it was a beater. That's the only way to describe it. It was an old jalopy, a 1986 Toyota pickup truck. It was rusted through. The air conditioner barely worked, which is a bad thing in Texas. Have I told you how hot Texas is? Texas is hot. Uh, and the air conditioner barely worked. The heater barely worked. It, it, it all seemed to just barely hold together. On the side of the truck was a massive dent from where a deer had hit my dad. My dad didn't hit the deer. The deer hit my dad. Ran out of nowhere, plowed into the side. So I just had, he just left the dent there. I'm driving this thing to high school, just this old jalopy, barely held together with duct tape and bailing wire. And then as I got a little bit older, I, I got another older car, and it was also old. And as you drive older cars, you just, a new rattle is nothing to you. You expect a new rattle. I've never heard that rattle before. I don't know where it is. Oh, well, we'll just keep going, right? And so you eventually get used to it, all the problems and things like that that come with having an old car. Well, then as Andrea and I got married, we bought our first new car. The best thing about a new car, you all know what it is, the new car smell. You know it, everybody knows it. There's nothing like the new car smell. You get in there and it's, it just smells so nice. And when you drive down the road, you're not worried about rattles and you're not worried about those kinds of things. Instead, things it does that you didn't realize it did before. I didn't know it did that. Awesome. This is just making my life better every single day. This new car is, is great. But you know, you, you have a greater appreciation for the new after you've had the old, right? Amen, right? Anybody grow up with a jalopy that they drove? Yep, everybody, basically everybody, yeah. Uh, it's, that's, that's, it, it gives you a new appreciation, a better appreciation for the new when you had to work and earn it, but also when you used to drive a jalopy, you know? It, it makes everything a lot nicer. You have a greater appreciation for the new. In our text this morning... Jesus is bringing the kingdom of heaven in fullness to the people that he's teaching, that are following him. And we've seen this play out throughout the Gospel of Matthew. He's bringing this kingdom of heaven, and a lot of the things that he's instituting and he's talking about seem very new to them and very strange. And we're going to see a lot of that in our text this morning. Everything seems very new, and in contrast to the old the new is stark. So with that in mind, let's, let's read our text. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, 
He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. When Jesus uh, first steps onto the scene in ministry, uh, we see this in Matthew chapter 4. He picks up where John the Baptist left off. In fact, we see it in 4.17 when he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew tells us everywhere he went, he was teaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now John had already prepared the crowd for what Jesus was going to be teaching. John was seen teaching the exact same thing, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, in the previous chapter. But but it seems clear that when Jesus steps onto the scene, something is happening. Something new is taking place. Some changes are coming. And, And people are being told that God's rule is coming to earth. He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he means. God's rule is coming to earth in fullness. And then we get into the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus begins teaching the crowds the way that the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are supposed to live. And it seems very new, almost like an update to the law of Moses. We we saw that all throughout chapter 5. But he's very clear in 5.17. He tells them explicitly, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And we said back then that the claim that Jesus is making is that the law that has been given to people gives us a base understanding of the righteousness of God. Because of the law in the Old Testament, we start to understand a little bit about the righteousness of God. But we don't have a full understanding of God's righteousness. And so the law might have been sufficient to simply reveal that God is righteous and that we are sinners. It definitely did that. It revealed that to us very clearly. But it's insufficient to help the people listening or to help the readers of the Old Testament, it's insufficient to help the readers obtain the righteousness. It it basically leaves us as sinners condemned. But Jesus is saying, I am coming now to fulfill the law and the prophets. Meaning that He's coming to fully open the pathways to God. Give us access fully to God. To live out what it means to be perfect as a, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He's going to perfectly obey. Not only demonstrate what true righteousness is, but perfectly obey and provide that righteousness for us. The righteousness that we could not have apart from Him. In the passage that we're looking at, we see that Jesus is, is introducing the Jews 
to what is entailed in being his disciple. What does it mean to actually follow him, to be his disciple? Well, the old patterns of religion and piety are insufficient for the time. They won't work for the time. The old way of doing business doesn't really work anymore. Our text is broken down into two clear sections, and I want us to make two observations about the text as we work our way through it and what it means to follow Jesus as his disciples in the kingdom of heaven. The first is that following Jesus is freedom, not restriction. Following Jesus is freedom, not restriction. Look at verse 9 and following. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard Uh, When he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus and, and those that are following him are in Capernaum. And that much is pretty obvious because Matthew is sitting in a tax booth. Now, Capernaum is on the border of Herod Antipas's region and Herod Philip's region. And so Capernaum sits as like a border town, essentially, in Herod Antipas's region. And anybody that would cross over the border, um, they would be taxed on the goods that they bring across. And so Matthew is sitting at this tax booth on the border. Everybody would have to go in to the tax booth and pay the taxes on whatever they're bringing across in, from one region to another. Similar to the way we do when we travel internationally. We'd have to make claims or, or whatever as we go through customs. Well, now, a tax collector, at least in that day, for the most part, was a pretty vile person. You have, to, you have to understand that. We have to get into the mind of a first century Jew or a Jewish context. A, a tax collector is a, is, a, is a pretty vile person. Now, if you think about it, there's, there's two parts that led to the animosity on the part of the Jews toward the tax collectors. The first part was that they worked for the government, which was bad enough. Okay, They worked for the government. Now, you have to remember that in Herod Antipas's region, he's levying the taxes on these people, and he's a Roman agent. Now, to the Jews, Rome had no claim to this land. They didn't belong in this land. The Romans were illegitimately occupying this land. And now they're actually levying taxes on the Jews that are in the town. And now we've also got Jews that are working with the government to levy the taxes. So it might be similar today if in the Holy Lands, the Muslim occupation was from border to border. And not only that, but Sharia law was instituted in the land. And the Jews had to pay taxes to the Muslims that were there. And then there were some Jews that crossed over to tax their own people and work for the Muslims. We might see a very similar situation arising over there if that was the case. This is kind of the hostility that you can sense about the tax collectors in that day. But that's the first reason. 
The second reason that they were hated is that they often cheated people out of large amounts of money. So Rome would tell them how much they needed to collect and uh, per item or whatever it was, and they would collect that amount. But then anything beyond that amount, they could keep for themselves. And so often they cheated people out of large amounts of money. You'll remember the story of Zacchaeus in Luke. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Remember him? And a wee little man was he? He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Right? But the point of that story is Zacchaeus, who has defrauded people, ends up giving four times back to the people what he has defrauded them when he meets Jesus. The call for him as a sinner to repentance was to actually pay back all of the things that he had owed, and he goes above and beyond that. But the point is that in that text we see very clearly he had defrauded people. And this was common practice by the tax collectors at, in, that, in that day. The people that were watching the scene with Jesus and Zacchaeus, they complained that Jesus was going to Zacchaeus' house. What's he doing with that sinner? But here in the text in Matthew, Jesus makes a tax collector his disciple. And Matthew goes, no questions asked. He gets up and goes. But then the party moves from the tax booth. And in the parallel passages in Luke and Mark, we see that this party is actually taking place at Matthew's house with a lot of Matthew's friends. Some of them, it seems, are tax collectors. We see that they're called tax collectors and sinners in the text. And so we might call this today a retirement party. That's essentially what is happening here. Matthew has, it seems, given up his entire career in favor of following Jesus. And here he's at his house throwing a big shindig and all of his friends are there chowing down. All right? That's, it's right there in the text. I don't, I don't know if you can see that, but it is there. Um, now, I don't need to tell you what kind of scandal this is. This, this is a, there's no other word for it but a scandal. Even a, even a cursory reading of the Gospels, you'll see that the tax collectors are despised in Jewish society. And if you didn't pick up on that, then the term sinners that usually follows right after the word tax collectors should give you a clue. They're the tax collectors and sinners. Now, in general... A sinner was one who just didn't conform to the typical mores of the day. They didn't uh, obey the, the particular rituals of tithing, of fasting, or, or, or purity as far as the laws go. Now, in the Zacchaeus story, he is referred to as both a tax collector and a sinner. He's referred to as one and the same in that passage. So he was sinful in the way that he collected his taxes. So it's possible that in this story in Matthew, we just got a bunch of tax collectors all sitting around a table, and they're all lumped into the tax collecting and sinning business. They might as well be drug dealers. It doesn't matter. They're all there in the same lot together with just a bunch of sinners. That's all they are. They're the reprobate of society. You get the picture. That's pretty common for a Jewish teacher to gather his disciples and to begin teaching them the cultural traditions of Judaism. How to be pious. You tithe. You fast. You observe the holy days. 
You observe other forms of purity that we observe culturally speaking. You're taught to be pious. You're taught to be solemn. You're taught to be reserved. But here Jesus is obviously not abiding by the fasting. They're all sitting around a table eating. And assuming, like any other meal, this party is kicked back. We're at the end of the party. Everybody's relaxed. They're sitting around talking, having a good time, the meal already having been eaten. This is not typical of a teacher. This is not what a rabbi would do. In fact, I would venture to guess Jesus is the only teacher teaching his disciples to behave this way. So this is why John's disciples will come up to him in the next paragraph, we'll see later on, and ask him why he does the things that he does. So Jesus is breaking some cultural norms as he draws the ire of the Pharisees. But it's not just cultural norms, there's some boundaries that he's crossing as well. As I mentioned earlier, tax collectors were the dregs of society, not because they were poor, but actually because they were crooked. They cheated people, sometimes even poor people, out of, their, out of their livelihood. And beyond that, they're doing it for the evil Roman Empire. They're doing it on behalf of the, the illegitimate Roman occupation. So they're essentially holding the people of God captive. Their own brothers and sisters, they're holding them captive. But do you think that the Pharisees would associate with tax collectors? Well, they would but under certain conditions. They, they would, but only on the Pharisee's terms. See, the Pharisee is demanding that a person adhere to the re- religious rituals and traditions. Remember, the sinners is just a broad term. It's for people that just reject all of that out of hand. And so essentially, the, the, this group if this group around Jesus at the table would simply come to the temple and submit to the religiosity of the day, then the Pharisees uh, would happily associate with them. As long as they would meet on the Pharisees' terms. The cultural boundary that Jesus is breaking is that the people know where the temple is. The people know where the synagogue is. Is And if they want to be close to God, then they know how to get it. And these people here, sitting around with Jesus, have obviously rejected that way of thinking. And they've chosen to live the kind of lives they live. They've obviously chosen not to go there. So Jesus is pushing hard against that cultural paradigm. He's coming back against the Pharisees. And he's communing with these people. And the Pharisees don't like it. See, essentially the problem here is the Pharisees are saying not only is this man, Jesus, defiling himself by meeting with such sinners, but this is just not the way that we practice religion. We don't do things this way. But it's here that in the story that we begin to get a glimpse of what exactly Jesus is calling Matthew and really all disciples to. What is he calling us as disciples to? Well, it's here that you get a, a picture 
as Jesus' disciples, we're following him into this kind of ministry. The ministry to all who are lost in sin and without hope in the world. Everyone who is lost in sin and without hope in the world. The boundaries are broken. Pharisees push back against Jesus' actions here. But they don't do it to him directly. They do it to his disciples. They ask them first. Remember last week we saw that the scribes had questioned Jesus in their hearts. They didn't say it out loud. They, they questioned it in their hearts. Now we're introduced to a second group of people, the Pharisees, who actually voice it, but not to Jesus. They voice it to his disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But what they're not understanding is that Jesus is opening up the call to salvation to a wide variety of people. He is involving himself with people that would otherwise be considered scandalous to associate with, but these are precisely the people that are in need of the cure. Precisely the people that are in need of the healing. The Pharisees are living in a world where they're guilty by association. See, they're they're thinking, if I take God to the people that need Him the most, they won't become clean, but rather I'll become unclean. But what did we see in the last chapter where Jesus comes face to face with a leper and He reaches out and touches Him on the head? Jesus is obviously breaking down some barriers of what people have traditionally thought of in ministry to an unclean world. D.A. Carson put it this way, expecting a Messiah who would crush the sinful and support the righteous, they had little place for one who accepted and transformed the sinner and dismissed the righteous as hypocrites. Jesus explained his mission in terms reminiscent of Matthew 121. He will save his people from their sins. There's no suggestion here that he went to sinners because they gladly received him. Rather, he went to them because they were sinners, just as a doctor goes to the sick because they are sick. Jesus hears their question to the disciples, and he turns to them and he quotes Hosea 6 6. In there in verse 13, you can see that. He quotes Hosea 6, 6 to them. And it's helpful to understand what's happening in the book of Hosea to understand the point that Jesus is making. Even if you've never read the book of Hosea through, you probably remember some of the highlights of the story. You'll remember where God tells the prophet Hosea that he has to go marry a lady of the evening. You remember this? And this is just in the first three chapters. And she cheats on him over and over. And God commands Hosea to continue to go back and pursue her and restore the relationship and forgive his wife, Gomer. Which couldn't make it easier. Her name was Gomer. His marriage is to serve as a picture of God's covenant faithfulness to Israel and Israel's constant abuse of that covenant faithfulness. And in spite of the many times that Israel goes after other gods, he continues to come to them and restore the relationship. Why? Because he's merciful. That's why. Not because they don't deserve punishment, but because he's merciful. But then in the book, after chapter 3 and following, comes a list of indictments on the nation of Israel. 
She's a, a list of indictments, of things that they're in trouble for. And chief among the indictments is the fact that they corrupt justice and abuse the poor. So the rich get their day in court. They can pay the judge off. They can pay for the fancy lawyers or however the legal system worked at the time. But the poor don't get their day in court. They don't get justice. The systems are rigged against them where the rich are the only ones that get heard. And the rejects of society always end up getting the shaft. But in spite of the abuse, here's where the indictment comes. In spite of the abuse of the poor that they're committing, they continue to make it back every Saturday to the temple to, or to the synagogue to pay their respects to, the, the, to, to God, to continue to pay their, their dues to the synagogue as if they, they worship there, as if they're worshiping rightly. They continue to offer their sacrifices year in and year out. So they found a way, essentially, to preserve the religiosity of the day but their hearts are far from God. So Jesus quotes a verse in that context. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus' citation of Hosea is not just merely meant to correct the Pharisees. Oh, remember this? No, no, no. This is an indictment on the Pharisees. One that they don't take seriously because in a few chapters, he'll tell them if you had gone to learn what this meant. <laughs> they obviously didn't go. It's an indictment. See, the Pharisees are caught in that same trap that ancient Israel was caught in. It's about ceremony. It's about festivals. It's about appearing righteous. It's about all the stuff that makes one look righteous to the outside world, but they're rejecting the people of society that need truth the most, that need God the most. They're refusing to extend mercy to the outcast when God has repeatedly come back to them time and time again and has shown them an abundance of mercy. The Pharisees have been playing this religious game for so long that they've forgotten how far away from God they really are. They've forgotten how merciful God has been to His people. When although they rejected Him time and time again, He continues to come back to them and show them mercy. Then Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, call them to what? Well, in the parallel passage in Luke Luke adds to repentance. Came to call the, the, uh, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And back in chapter 4 of Matthew, he tells us that Jesus began teaching and preaching everywhere he went. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's not just calling them to come have a good time. He's not just hanging out with sinners just because it's more fun to hang out with sinners than everybody else. He's calling them specifically to repentance and he's doing it by hanging out with them. And this is the marker of God's abundant mercy, is it not? This is the marker that he offers sinners a chance to repent of their sins. Brothers and sisters, this message that Jesus brings is for us and for our neighbors. Don't get in the position where you think this is just for someone else. 
This is for us and for our neighbors. It's for us precisely because every single person in this room is a sinner in desperate need of God's forgiveness. Every single one of us. We've committed sins this morning that are worthy of hell. But it's for our neighbors because they need His forgiveness too. As we live on mission in this world, we will encounter people caught in all kinds of sin. Our problem will be when we see ourselves as so righteous that these sinful people can't even sit at our dinner table lest their sins rub off on us or our children. You hear what kind of words come out of his mouth? What if he teaches those words to my kids? What if my kids pick up on those words? Could you believe that? You know the kind of lifestyle they live? It's an alternative lifestyle. I'm not sure my kids are ready to see that kind of alternative lifestyle. No, no. I would challenge us to consider not just when, but how we expose our children to the nature of the world that they live in. There's a temptation on the part of parents, myself included, to preserve innocence in our children. To see it last as long as we possibly can. But let me ask you, would you rather them see sin on the TV? Or would you rather see it at your kitchen table as, your, as their parents live out what it means to be missional Christians? I want to choose the latter. Inside the kingdom of God, you are not restricted in your associations. That's the change that's come. That's the transition that's happening here. That's what he's calling us into. You are free to minister to all people in all places and at all times. Second thing I want us to see is that following Jesus is hope for the future, not despair for the past. Following Jesus is hope for the future, not despair for the past, or the present for that matter. Look at verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away and fr from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. Uh, we saw last week that the scribes are questioning in their hearts that Jesus it, it has the authority to forgive. And, and then this past we saw that the Pharisees are questioning out loud to the disciples. They're asking the disciples, well, well, now Jesus is actually getting confronted by a whole new group of people, but this one kind of comes at a, from an unsuspected source. This is the disciples of John. They're coming to him and questioning him. See, Jesus' ministry has come as a, quite a shock to them because they've picked up a lot of the patterns of the Pharisees who are uh, fasting at normal times. They're observing the traditional relig uh, religiosity or the, the piety of the day. 
And so as they're doing this, the disciples of John have picked up of the very same thing. Now, when you read that, I don't want you to think that just because they're doing these forms of piety, that that makes them somehow hypocrites. No, I think deep down in their hearts, this is what piety equaled. When you do this, this means that you have a, a, a dedication to the Lord, that you're trying to live your life in consecration to the Lord. Now, when they, when, the, when they fasted in the first century, in first century Judaism, essentially they're commemorating the tragic events of the past. And so they're looking back on all the events that have happened to the Jews up to that point, and they're twice a week fasting from food, commemorating those events, similar to how we would do maybe like a 9-11, where, where especially on a big anniversary, all the TV channels be filled with some sort of commemoration service and things like that. Well, that's how they would enact their, their commemorating of these events. They would fast. And that's why we see back in chapter 6 of Matthew why they would disfigure their faces because they're in a habit of mourning. They, they look back at the events of the past and they're mourning over the things that have taken place. And, and they're there is a cry out to God that he would bring his Messiah and that he would make all things right. And so the disciples of John have taken up this same pattern of mourning over the past ills of Judaism. They're doing the same things. And so they're, they're not doing it, I don't think, out of a hypocritical heart necessarily. They're doing it because they think this is what it means to live a life of consecration to the Lord. But then they also notice that Jesus and his disciples are not doing that. Well, here's a man coming in, claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be the Messiah. Our teacher, John the Baptist, said, Behold the Lamb of God. They've got all these thoughts running through their head. Shouldn't he be more pious than we are? So Jesus explained, I don't, I don't get it. In a couple chapters, John will actually send his disciples to Jesus again, this time with more questions about whether or not he really is the Messiah. So Jesus responds to their question, and he gives three, basically, analogies, each one of them underscoring what he's doing and how the kingdom that he's bringing is different than what has come before. Or it's bringing in some changes. The first comparison is to a wedding there in verse 15. Now, admittedly, not a lot is known about first century Jewish weddings, but there does seem to be a heavy emphasis more on the groom than today would be on the bride. No word whether or not groomzilla was a word back then. I don't know. It's not in any of the Greek lexicon, so, but maybe it was. I don't know. But the, the point is the groom, everyone's celebrating because the groom is coming to take the bride. He is coming as kind of like a, I guess you would say like a knight in shining armor, so to speak. And he's coming to take the bride. And so there is a celebration underway when Jesus compares himself to the groom. And he's saying that the groom is here. The celebration has begun. The groom has come to take his bride. And so the wedding guests, which would be Jesus' disciples, and basically all of those sitting around the table not fasting, are celebrating in the midst of the groom, Jesus, who has come once and for all to be with them. But he says there will be a time when fasting is restored, and that's when the groom goes away. So the first reason that he gives to, for the disciples not fasting is pretty simple. They're not in mourning. 
That's why they're not fasting. They're not in mourning. They're celebrating the presence of the groom. The second and third comparisons are nearly identical. But the first comparison is in verse 16, and it's, it's to uh, patching a torn garment from, uh, yeah, patching a torn garment with a, a, a new patch. And then in verse 17, it's to the preservation of uh, wine, uh, grape juice, I mean. Um, <clears throat> in verse 16, he, uh, he compares uh, sewing this garment with a piece of unshrunk cloth. And he's saying, look, this can't happen. You can't sew a new piece of garment uh, that's unshrunk to an old garment that's already been shrunk. It won't work. The two are completely incompatible when they work together. The next is to the wineskins. The old wineskins are unfit to hold the new wine. Or they'll burst and the new wine will be spilled everywhere, which the wine represents a, a... joyous pattern of religion it's it's new it's it's joyous it's not characterized by mourning anymore or sorrow now it's characterized by rejoicing because the king has come and the kingdom of god with jesus arrival has officially dawned we might think of this like parents who have just sent their son off to war so he's joined the military and he's gone and so every day the parents commit to getting up in the morning and praying for their son. Praying for his safety and his health and his well-being and that he would be returned back to them shortly. And so every day they go about this same pattern of waking up and praying for their son who's gone off to war. And the mom is just is grieved because her baby boy is off in the war. And she's just her friends notice that she's very different for these years. And so several years pass by. And finally the son comes back home. He's unharmed. He has all the accolades from an honorable discharge. Coming back, ready to join just civilian life again and, and have a job. And he comes to his parents' home and they are so happy and they sit him down at the table and they have a dinner and then the next morning mom and dad get up in the morning and they again go back to the same pattern. They pray for their son's safety and well-being. The mom still looks grieved. Wouldn't we naturally ask why? Your son is home. It doesn't seem like the grief fits with the occasion. That's Jesus' point. The patterns of your old way of thinking don't fit with what's happening now. Yes, they they were good. Yes, they had a purpose. Yes, they served their time. But the king is here and you can rejoice. You don't get in your new car listening for old sounds. You don't expect old rattles like you did when you you drove the jalopy. What then does that mean for us to be disciples of Jesus, to follow Him? It means we can rejoice that the new kingdom has officially come. Salvation from God is available to all through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, dead on the cross and resurrected on the third day, dying for our sins. 
Salvation from God is available to all. This brings great rejoicing. The, the bridegroom has been taken away for a season. He has been taken away for a season. And so, we're without the physical presence of Jesus. And that comes with its own sorrow. As we look at the world around us, there's going to be some sorrow because Christ is not here physically reigning with us, which leads us to the same place that John gets at the end of the book of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. As we look at illness, as we look at sickness, as we look at frustrations that are around us aplenty, it should lead us to that same confession. Come, Lord Jesus. There's a desire that he will come back. But as Paul says, the disciple of Jesus is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So even our sorrow is undermined by our joy and our rejoicing. So then, let's take this down to us. How does this actually meet us where we live? And I'll, I'll say it as succinctly as I can. Our hope must be set on Jesus and the new kingdom that he brings rather than on our present circumstances. Our hope must be firmly affixed on Jesus rather than on our present circumstances. Now, when we set our sights on our present circumstances, the outcome looks very bleak. Now, there's two ways I think that this comes to us. The first is broadly. When we look at the things that are happening across our world... When we just we take a step back, we look at you know one of the news channels, and we see all of the events that are taking place around the world, that feeling of anxiety hits us a little bit. It changes the way we counsel people. Tell me if you've ever heard this. Particularly people that are seasoned in life, that have been married for some time. They say about their kids or their grandkids. I know they're going to have children, and I just, I just fear the world that they're going to grow up in. Take that and throw it out of your vocabulary. Just throw it away. That's not a very Christian way of thinking. You live, we live, in one of the best countries that has, the best country that has ever been on the face of the planet when it comes to religious freedom. There's never been more freedom than there is in this country. And Christians, 2,000 years ago, were being fed to the lions and were being burned at the stake merely for being Christian. And was their advice, stop having children? No, it was quite the opposite. If you have godly kids who have a godly marriage... Encourage them. Have a thousand children. How many children can you possibly have in one lifetime? Have that many. The best way to see the ungodly world confronted is for the godly to raise godly children and send them out. Amen. Encourage them instead. Amen. Have children. But see, when we take our eyes off of the king 
and we move it to the present circumstances, we start to get afraid. Fear sets in, does it not? Then there's also, so there's broadly, we look at the events that are going on in the world and we fear, and then there's the things that come to us close, that, that, are, that are closer to us. Family drama, things that, that happen all the time that we have to deal with, and they drag us into dark places. For me, when we first moved here, just a personal example, I'm just going to take off the mask for just a minute. This might border on too honest, okay, just saying this. When we first moved here, it was difficult. When you move from one culture to another, even though we're both in the South, it's different. And I, I felt myself, I, I knew that it was happening. I felt myself desperately wanting to be liked. Desiring nothing. And this is not on you. There was nothing you did or didn't do. It was on me. And so I felt like all my worth and my value was all tied up in what people thought of me. So what happens? Depression sets in. Hope disappears. There were Dark days. Hard times. Simply because that was my perspective. I looked at the people that were around me, peers, whatever, and all I wanted was acceptance. Not realizing, or not dwelling on, or thinking about, Christ has accepted me. The king of the universe has accepted me. And when I stop focusing on that, and I move then to all the circumstances that are around me and desire acceptance here, yeah, but I, I know that's true, but I really want this. This has become my God. And it does what false gods do. It leads to darkness. But when our hope is set on Christ, well, the future looks a lot brighter. Everything looks a lot better. We're seeing this right now. There's two ways to look at this. Right now in places like China, North Korea, Iran, Iraq, all of these places, the reports coming out of there is that the church is growing like wildfire in spite of the fact that it's under the most tyrannical governments that the world has ever known. It's growing like wildfire. So there's one way to look at that. We need to turn to the Lord in prayer for these people who are suffering every day, sometimes being put to death, imprisonment, starvation, tons of things. We need to commit to praying for these brothers and sisters around the world that are fighting for their lives. But when we fix our eyes on Christ, we also get a, a bright view of the future. These governments are trying to put out a fire, and they're not going to be successful. In spite of their tyranny, it grows like wildfire. 
It's unquenchable. There's some that I've heard, the reports coming out of North Korea is that the underground church is growing faster than anywhere in the world. When we fix our eyes on Christ, the future is bright. Because following Christ as His disciple means that a new day has dawned and the kingdom has come. And for that, we can celebrate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for the confidence that You've given to us in Christ. Or it's not our, our confidence. That would be arrogance. But it's boldness knowing that we've received acceptance in your heavenly court. That Christ has paid the sacrifice for us. He's paid the price for us. And we don't have to. pray that that would drive our confidence. I pray that with the world around us growing ever more dark, it would only serve to make people that belong to your kingdom shine like stars. I pray that we would have the confidence and boldness share that with others. The compassion, the mercy to share that with others. To follow you as you go about saving your people. In Jesus' name, amen.